Welcome to Dark Gate Horror Podcast, episode number three. Today's episode will discuss secret keeping as a plot device in horror, thriller, and mystery films and literature. I had intended to talk about the use of metaphor in The Minister's Black Veil for this episode, but thought secret keeping may be more interesting. Sophocles wrote, Do nothing secretly, for time sees and hears all things and discloses all. So why do people keep secrets? I believe there are many reasons for this. We attempt to conceal aspects of ourselves from others due to shame, fear, rejection, and loss of acceptance, among other reasons. People who find out the information may abuse or misuse it to the detriment of the previous secret keeper. Additionally, some people may not be understanding and more problems could come out uh, rather than actually keeping the secret. Sharing the information may hurt the secret keeper or someone else. And finally, some people just like to keep the utmost level of privacy in their lives. If we look at this on a deeper level, we attempt to conceal aspects of ourselves that we are not capable of or comfortable with incorporating into our personal psychology. Everyone has experiences, memories, and feelings that they want to keep private or share with certain people. Equally strong, we have a need and desire to keep and share aspects of ourselves. There are two main schools of thought on this subject. First, most secrets are okay to keep so long as they are not dangerous or damaging. Second, it is never okay to keep secrets because they are counterproductive and damaging to a person's well-being. This school suggests we would all be better off by not having any secrets. However, I don't think it's possible to go through life without having any secrets. So is it okay to keep a secret? I think it's perfectly normal, but it depends on the secret as well as the person. Some people may be tormented by the need to tell someone and waste extreme amounts of time and energy into preserving the secret. So, I'm going to talk about secret keeping in film and literature. The examples I'm going to use are The Minister's Black Veil, The Telltale Heart, those are two stories, and two films, Fatal Attraction and The Sixth Sense. Secret keeping is a common occurrence in literature and film, and many examples could be discussed. This past season on Supernatural... There was an episode called Bloody Mary about people harboring a secret in which someone was hurt. I recently did a full episode review of this at supernaturalpodcast.blogspot.com. When Mary's victims look at themselves in the mirror, Mary makes their eyes bleed and kills them. Some people display their sins, others hide them with confidence. In The Scarlet Letter, also by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Hester Prim was forced to show her sin by wearing the letter or the red letter A on her chest. In Spider-Man, Peter Parker feels that he has chosen to lead his life, saving people and making the world a better place. With great power comes great responsibility. He loves MJ, but cannot be with her because it will bring added danger to her life. So he must sacrifice his love and happiness for the greater good. And he must keep his true identity a secret. The literature examples I'm going to discuss are from the Romantic era, and the film examples are from recent times. Um, So let's talk about literature. The Romantic era was characterized by an emphasis on individual freedom from social conventions or political restraints, on human imagination, and on nature in a typically idealized form. Romantic literature rebelled against the formalism of 18th century reason. Many Romantic writers had an interest in the culture of the Middle Ages, an age noted for its faith, which stood in contrast to the Age of Enlightenment and pure logic. So beware, on all of the stories I'm going to talk about, there are spoilers, I will. Just want to warn you up front. So the first one, The Minister's Black Veil. It's by Nathaniel Hawthorne from 1836. So I'm just going to do a brief summary of it. The story is set in an assumedly Puritan community in the 17th century. The story tells the tale of Reverend Hooper, after he suddenly and most mysteriously began to wear a veil of black crepe over his face, covering all but his mouth. 
Hawthorne adds in a footnote detailing an incident similar to the story of how a minister in Puritan New England assumes a black veil after accidentally killing a childhood friend. The reverend assumes the black veil before the church's first or day meeting, after he proceeds to officiate at a funeral and then a wedding. The parishioners are shocked by the sight of the veil. The veil, quote, makes him ghost-like from head to foot. Before wearing the veil, he was described as having mild persuasive influences. He was a good preacher, but not enthusiastic. After wearing the veil, his persona is described as having a powerful effect, a subtle power, and that he very much affected everyone. No one wanted to be near him as they did before. At a wedding, he catches a glimpse of himself in a mirror and has the same shocked response as the people. From that time on, he cannot look at himself in the mirror. And there's a parallel here, I think, um, to the Bloody Mary story that I talked about a little while ago from Supernatural. My favorite line of the story is at the wedding, when Mr. Hooper sees himself in the mirror. Quote, For the earth, too, had on her black veil. This is the only time we see capitalization of black veil. This line could be read several ways. It could mean that it's nighttime. Another could mean that everything, including Hooper, was wearing a veil and is dark and hiding something. Finally, it could be a reference to the Puritan fight for, with nature for survival. The settlers had a very difficult time at the beginning. Illness, starvation, and death were very real issues at the time, as they fought with nature to build and maintain a settlement. For a good example of what it was like at the time, read the writings of Anne Bradstreet. She lived from 1612 to 1672. In a later conversation with his fiancée, Elizabeth, Mr. Hooper tells her that he must wear the veil because it's a sign of mourning. He, like all mortals, has dark sorrows that must be covered with a veil. He refuses to remove the veil, even for Elizabeth. Mr. Hooper says, Oh, you not know how lonely I am and how frightened to be alone behind my black veil. Do not leave me in this miserable obscurity forever. He gives up love and marriage to wear the black veil. Mr. Hooper became very popular in New England and was given the nickname of Father Hooper. I think there are several reasons for this. It's a sign of respect of Hooper as an elder. He has obtained a higher rank than others to be called father. And finally, as a reference to God as father, they see Mr. Hooper as being able to see through them into their souls and see their sins. Based upon Hawthorne's beliefs in the dangers of isolation and the inherent evil nature of mankind, it's assumed that the message of the story is that people will never come to grips with their own evil nature. Mr. Hooper's dying words, in which he condemns others as dishonest with themselves, also affirm this theme. He says, Then deem me a monster for the symbol beneath which I have lived and die. I look around, and lo, on every visage a black veil. It is here that we see that there are three meanings for the veil. One, it's a physical veil. Two, it's a covering for sins. And three, it's the curtain between earth and eternity. The veil retains its effect because hidden sin is everywhere. The protagonist conceals his secret sin, which parallels to young Goodman Brown, also by Hawthorne. By concealing his secret sin, Mr. Hooper essentially helps other Puritans to realize everybody has a secret sin. Some display their sins, and others hide them with confidence, just as I mentioned before regarding the Scarlet Letter. Okay, so let's talk about The Telltale Heart. It's a story by Edgar Allan Poe from 1843. And here's a summary. The Telltale Heart is the first-person narrative of an unnamed narrator who is taking care of an old man with a clouded, vulture-like eye. His feverishly heightened senses, which lead to an irrational fear of the clouded eye, which perhaps had glaucoma or cataract. Perhaps the narrator suffered from mental illness. The narrator becomes so distressed with the eye that he plots to murder the old man so that he will not be haunted by the vulture-like eye anymore. 
For several nights, the narrator opens the door of the old man's room, watching and waiting for the right time. However, the old man's eye is shut, hiding the clouded eye, and the narrator loses the urge to kill. He says, all in vain, because death, in approaching the old man, had stalked with his black shadow before him, and the shadow had now reached and enveloped the victim. The narrator refers to himself as death. One night, though, the old man awakens as the narrator is watching and reveals the eye. The narrator can hear the man's heart beating faster and faster and proceeds to smother him with a mattress. The narrator proceeds to chop up the body and hides the pieces under the floorboard, hiding all signs of the crime. When the police respond to a call placed by a neighbor who heard the old man's screams, the narrator invites them to look around, confident they will not find any evidence of the murder. They sit around the old man's room, right on top of the very hiding place of the corpse, yet suspect nothing. The narrator, however, begins to hear a faint noise. As the noise grows louder, he realizes it's the heartbeat of the old man coming from under the floorboards. He grows paranoid at the fact that the officers seem to pay no heed to the sound, being loud enough to hear. Coupled with the beating of the heart and the narrator's feeling that the officers must be aware of the heartbeats, he loses his cool and confesses his crime. He says, I felt I must scream or die, and now again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. In this story, the narrator's paranoia, and perhaps a form of mental illness, overshadows his ability to keep the secret, and he confesses it to the police. I must say, I've read this story at least a dozen times. It stays with me, and I think of it from time to time. It's a very short piece, but the imagery and horror makes it one of Poe's best works. So let's move on to films. The first is Fatal Attraction from 1987. It's a thriller about a married man who has an affair with a woman who refuses to allow it to end and becomes obsessed with him. It stars Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. Dan Gallagher appears to be a happily married New York attorney living in Manhattan with his beautiful wife and young daughter whom he, d he adores. They have a wonderful life until the day he becomes acquainted with Alex Forrest an editor from a publishing company at a business party where he and Alex immediately connect and strike up a conversation. Dan and his wife, Beth, are interested in buying a house in Bedford where she and her daughter travel for the weekend. Dan spends the weekend with Alex while his wife and daughter are away. What Dan thought would be a simple fling turns into a dangerous affair when Alex begins to cling to him obsessively, and she will stop at nothing to win Dan over from his family. Alex's obsession for Dan becomes evident initially when he, she attempts suicide after Dan explains to her that he must go home and get on with his normal life. Alex's apparent obsession, which seems to become stronger as time goes on, drives her to the direction of madness and constantly reminds Dan of the terrible mistake he made. Because of Alex's immense obsession, her deterioration becomes extremely excessive. Alex even kills Dan's daughter Ellen's pet rabbit while they are away from their home. She goes on to kidnap Ellen from school one day. However, she takes her home after they spend the afternoon together. Finally, at the end of the movie, Alex is so determined to get rid of Dan's family that she goes overboard and feels she has no other choice but to attempt to kill the main thing standing between her and Dan, which is Beth, Dan's wife. While Beth is in the bathroom, Alex's reflection appears in the mirror. She has come with a butcher knife, ready for murder. She attacks Beth, and when Dan hears the screaming, he comes in to wrestle Alex to the bathtub and drowns her or so he thought. She emerges out of the water, swinging her butcher knife, and Beth immediately shoots her before anything else happens. Alex Forrest is finally dead and out of their lives forever. Alex constantly reminds Dan about their affair, 
and he is therefore forced to keep his lies secret from his family. The film shows his difficulty with keeping his secret. Alex is taking revenge out of out on Dan for keeping his secret and staying with his wife instead of choosing her. In the final scene of the film, the lies and deception come full circle and Alex's wish for death at the beginning of the film is carried out by Dan's wife. In this case, the secret destroyed each of their lives. And finally, let's talk about The Sixth Sense from 1999. Dr. Malcolm Crowe, played by Bruce Willis, is a prominent child psychologist who, in the opening scene, returns home one night with his wife from an event in which he was honored for his efforts with children. The two discover they are not alone, and a disturbed, nearly naked man, played by Donnie Wahlberg, appears in the doorway of their bathroom with a gun. He is upset that Crow has not helped him, and Crow realizes that he is Vincent Gray, a former patient whom Crow treated as a child for his hallucinations and delusions. He blames Malcolm for his inability to help him and shoots him in the stomach, and later pulls the trigger on himself. Months later, Malcolm returns to work with another frightened boy, nine-year-old Cole Sear, played by Haley Joel Osmond, with a similar condition to Vincent. Cole keeps his secret for fear that no one will understand or be able to help him. Malcolm becomes dedicated to this patient, although he is haunted by doubts over his ability to help him after his failure with Vincent. Meanwhile, he begins to neglect his wife, with whom his relationship is falling apart. Malcolm earns Cole's trust, and Cole ultimately confides in him that he is clairvoyant and can see dead people. Together, they find a way to help Cole with the spirits by trying to communicate with the ghosts, perhaps to help them on their journey by aiding them with their unfinished business. In turn, this helps Dr. Crow come to terms with his own regret with Vincent. Empowered now by his ability to use his gift to positive effect, Cole confesses his ability to his mother, Lynn, played by Tony Collette. Although his mother is troubled by his story, Cole tells her that her mother, Cole's grandmother, went to her, see her perform in a dance recital one night when she was a child, although Lynn did not know this because her grandmother stayed in the back of the audience where she could not be seen. Lynn accepts this as the truth, and her rapport with Cole is strengthened. His faith in himself, now restored as a result of his success with Cole, Crow returns to his home where he finds his wife sleeping on the couch, watching their old wedding video. A short conversation with his sleeping wife follows, and it's then that the major, um, the film's major plot twist is revealed. Malcolm himself has been dead all along, having died the night that Vincent shot him, and hence obvious why Cole could see him while his wife was seemingly distant. In this case, telling the secret was the best thing for Cole to do, but he struggles with it. Even a young child can show great maturity when needed. Vincent's death at the beginning of the film not only sets up Dr. Crow's guilt and regret, but shows us the potential result for holding a secret for so long, or not being understood and rejected when a secret is revealed. Dr. Crow suspected hearing and seeing ghosts as being a form of mental illness. So, I'm just briefly going to discuss um, some other uses for secret keeping. A common usage is to withhold a secret, finally reveal it, then there's a bad response on the parties, uh, you know, the other parties involved, and then there's a resolution. The revelation of a secret is often intentionally placed at the climax of a story for the purpose of dramatic intensity and suspense building, especially the twist placed at the end of stories. M. Night Shyamalan, writer and director of The Sixth Sense, among others, is particularly known for his surprise twist at the end. His new film, The Lady in the Water, which opens on July 21st, 2006, supposedly will not have a twist the first of his films to do so. A website I frequent is postsecret.blogspot.com. Frank Warren developed the site, and the premise is simple. This is um, from his website. People mail in postcards proclaiming their secret, and it's posted there. 
The website states, You are invited to anonymously contribute your secrets to PostSecret. Each secret can be a regret, hope, funny experience, unseen kindness, fantasy, belief, fear, betrayal, erotic desire, feeling, confession, or childhood humiliation. Reveal anything as long as it's true and you have never shared it with anyone else. Create your 4 by 6 inch postcards out of any mailable material. If you want to share two or more secrets, use multiple postcards. Put your complete secret and image on one side of the postcard. Tips. Be brief. The fewer words used, the better. Be legible. Use big, clear, and bold lettering. And be creative. Let the postcard be your canvas. Sometimes people post a response to their postcard. Frank has even published a book with a sampling of the cards. Post Secret was even featured in the All-American Rejects video for Dirty Little Secret. Why is it so popular? I think it's because people want to share a secret but cannot trust anyone with it. So the ability to post it anonymously, it will help them feel better and be able to tell someone else once they actually admit it to themselves. And I'll put a link um, to the website in the show notes. So I'll close with some lyrics from Silent All These Years by Tori Amos. Years go by, will I still be waiting for someone else to understand? I've been here, silent all these years. The song of the week is Summer by The Remainders. Dogs weren't meant to fly But neither was I Neither was I The last day's gone by And we're saying goodbye Saying goodbye To push a set of hands to pull They just move the boxes through These people don't move animals So we made a box out of you When I saw you on the tarmac I recognized your wire and plastic I guess the smaller pieces go in the first I keep the faith, fear the worst I guess I know we'll be alright I hope you won't deny I'll watch until you disappear
For today, dear listeners, I am moving in two weeks, 2,200 miles away, so things are pretty hectic around here, and my podcast will not be released as timely as I would like. I plan to do the next podcast on Jack the Ripper, which is one of my favorite horror topics. I hope you enjoyed the discussion on this episode, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Have a great week! You can contact me at darkgatehorror at gmail.com or at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com.